And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered and went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Well, good morning, Covenant. It's good to see everyone. Before we get into the message this morning, I thought I'd give you a quick update on our capital campaign. I haven't really given you a report since we kicked that off, and we have a couple more weeks uh, that uh, it's open for you to turn in uh, a commitment card. You know, we had hoped, uh, we really had a, a need to raise uh, at least a million dollars, and we kind of hoped to have uh, around 1.5 million. That would be a, a phenomenal uh, achievement. Right now, we, uh, we stand at um, $1,320,000. Phenomenal, phenomenal job. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so, hey, listen, if you have not turned in your card yet, please do so by the end of the month. You can do so electronic, uh, but with paper cards or in the back by the North Foyer, or you can do it electronically. Um, you know, I, just as a kind of maybe to help someone, I, I had a conversation a while back, and someone kind of mentioned that you know, they, were, they wanted to give, but they were reluctant to fill out a card because they perceived it as a, you know, a, a, this pledge card as a vow before God, you know, and it's better to never make a vow and then break that vow. And what if something happened and, you know, they lost their job and they weren't be able to fulfill that pledge, then they would have broken their vow to God. And uh, I explained to the person that this pledge card is not a vow before God, okay? I just want you to know that, church. This is a, a statement of your intention based upon what you know and, the, in, and how life is and the factors that you are aware of right now in your life and the foreseeable future of what you want to do and feel like God would have you to do, okay? If, if, if the world falls down around all of our ears, things are gonna change, right? If, if you lose your job and uh, you have no income coming in, we, we understand this is not a vow before God. This is a commitment of your intention based upon what you believe you're going to be able to do. And so if you plan to give, but you've held back because of that kind of uncertainty, please fill out a card so that we're able to budget and plan accordingly. And secondly, let's be in prayer for the building committee. They are thick in it with our architects and our uh, contractor um, as they are working on the design, working on the cost, and uh, coming up with uh, all kinds of things. We need to pray for them. It's very difficult what they're experiencing with uh, the changing of factors and the shifting uh, things that are going on in our society right now. They will come to us soon with an update so we will know where we, where we are at. So to begin this morning with our message, uh, I want us to start uh, by pointing us back to the last message I brought to you from the book of Acts, which goes back to the second week of December, right? Uh, Acts chapter five, um, a message called uh, entitled Responding to Resistance. And if you remember in that message, uh, we saw that the church uh, was going through a, a period of growth. They were gathering together 
on, uh, on a daily basis in Solomon's porch in the temple, an area where hundreds and even thousands of church people could gather and non-believers could gather. And the apostles were there. They were preaching the gospel. Um, people were coming to Christ every day. Uh, even priests within the temple were beginning to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the reasons why was because the gospel message was being authenticated through the apostles by the, the, the working of miracles. Phenomenal events were occurring. People were being healed and demons were being cast out. Even the shadow of Peter falling on the sick and the lame and the crippled would immediately heal them. So the gospel was being authenticated. People were turning to Christ. The church was just adding. And, and now by this point, there's thousands of people in this church, this new church that had only existed for a short period of time. And of course, this catches the attention of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, particularly the Sadducees, are concerned. And so the chief priests and that party, they arrest the apostles and they command them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and to stop inciting the people because as they talk about Jesus and his crucifixion, they said, you're bringing his blood upon our heads, which was ironic because... These are the very people who went to Pilate and said, crucify him and may his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children, right? But now they don't want that because the people are siding with the apostles and turning away from the, the temple and the temple authorities and the religious leadership. The apostles refuse. They, the, the gospel is preeminent in their lives. They preach it, they proclaim it. They boldly stand with the gospel and they're punished, but they are released because the, the Sanhedrin are afraid of the people and their response. And in that message, we just pointed out that active resistance to our faith provides a unique opportunity to experience the life-changing power of the gospel. There's something about it that when somebody does oppose our testimony for Christ, there's something within us that is strengthened and refined. I bring this to your attention in this reminder this morning because it's necessary. Um, we've experienced a little change from what our plans were. You know, our, the plan that we put forward uh, maybe back in the fall was that actually this morning, Randy Pope was supposed to bring the message, right? He brought the message last week from Acts chapter six, and he was supposed to bring here, be here this morning. And he was going to bring the message from Acts chapter 7 and the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, and he prepared those messages and everything. But uh, a dear uh, sister, a longtime sister in Christ, passed away, and he was called away to do uh, yet another funeral. And so the message that he was going to bring from Acts chapter 7, Stephen's martyrdom uh, today, he will bring next week. And the message that I was going to bring next week, I'm bringing today, Okay. And so uh, that's why I'm kind of uh, pointing back to Acts chapter 5, because what, where we are right now is in a section of Acts where we see opposition growing. First four chapters of Acts, the church is, you know, in the kumbaya stage, right? The church is growing and it's exploding and they're experiencing the power of God and things are wonderful. But then in chapter four, into chapter four, especially as you get into chapter five and then chapter seven, opposition begins to grow and then it explodes here in chapter eight. And so this reminder is necessary, what we, what we are looking at this morning. 
Because what we're looking at this morning is just a continuation of something that began in 30 AD in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. And what began back then continues to this very day. In fact, just recently, the uh, World Watch List, which releases a report every year on the persecution of the church, came out with their annual report for the 2021 year. And this is what they said. They said last year, over 360 million Christians, that's, that's basically one in every seven people who claim to be a Christian, they lived in a country and experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. So they lived in a country where high levels of persecution and discrimination took place. 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 6,175 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. 3,829 Christians were abducted. Right now, as we speak, there are Christians in Afghanistan who are hiding in fear of their lives as the Taliban is actively searching for them. If they find them, they will be arrested, they will be killed. This is happening in Afghanistan. This is happening in North Korea. This is happening in Yemen. This is happening in Sudan. This is happening in countries all around the world. Believe it or not, in the top 50 of countries that are persecuting Christians, one of them is to our south, Mexico, Cuba. We need this reminder. You know, most of us can't, can't even begin to imagine living in an environment that is so hostile to our faith that we have to practice it in secret like the believers in Afghanistan and India and other countries. Yet I do know many of your stories. Many of us here have faced different forms of persecution and abuse due to our faith. I, I think of some of you Christian grandparents who your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law have used your grandchildren as a weapon against you because of your Christian worldview and your refusal to compromise on that worldview. Uh, many of you, I think of those of you who you have faced ridicule at a family reunion or at a business lunch because of your belief in the scriptures, the belief that Jesus is the only way to salvation. My heart breaks over the abuse and the persecution that many of our ladies have experienced from their husbands because of their love for Jesus and their desire to be a Christian wife, a Christian mom. I'll never understand why a man will mock and ridicule and curse and even hit and beat his wife because she wants to love him as Christ would have him to be loved or to raise her children in the nurture of admission of the Lord. And yet this happens. And some of you have experienced this. And unless God brings revival to the church of America and pours out his grace upon our nation, we should expect to see more persecution and abuse for our faith 
increasing in our country in the years ahead as the political environment continues to become more divisive and change and evolve and as the cultural factors and movements become, continue to become more aggressive and more antagonistic towards the Christian faith. As philosophical ideologies arise that are antithetical to the gospel and they become more dominant in our nation and less God turns the tide in our churches and our nation, we become more and more a minority. Therefore, we become more and more a target. We should expect this. So this morning, we need the gospel applications that are in these first eight verses of the book of Acts. And uh, I want to highlight two of them this morning. First of all, I want to remind us that what we see in this passage that is that God is sovereignly superintending his people during times of persecution and abuse. Verse one says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Up until this time, the opposition, as we saw in chapter five, had focused on the apostles. As we'll see next week, however, it begins to change. Stephen, the deacon, one of those proto-deacons that, that Randy introduced to us last week, he's going to be a target. He's going to be the first martyr. He was a Hellenistic Jew. You remember, you remember last week in Randy's message, right? There was a problem in the early church. It was made up of Jews, but there were two different kinds of Jews. There were what we might call Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews, right? And the difference is, is this. The Hebrew Jew... Uh, his, his native tongue was Aramaic. His, his ancestral land was Israel. That's where he was maybe born and raised. And, and all of his culture was you know, there in Palestine. A Hellenistic Jew, his native language was, was Greek. Uh, he, his ancestral land might be in, in another country, another city out in maybe Greece or Asia Minor or, or Italy or, or in the Mediterranean world. At some point in the history of the Jewish people, through the dispersions that took place, his family was migrated out perhaps and they settled there. Maybe they lived there for decades or even centuries and at some point, while they maintained their Jewish faith, they adopted the languages, they understood the culture, they synthesized those things, but at some point they moved back to Jerusalem or to Israel. And this is what you had in Acts chapter 6. And so you had synagogues in Jerusalem that were Hebrew Jews, and you had some that were Hellenistic Jews, and they spoke Greek. And they all believed the law of Moses. They worshiped at the temple. They had that all in common, but they had different cultural backgrounds. And so as you remember last week, the, the, con, the conversions out of the Jewish people, some were Hebrew Jews, some were Hellenistic Jews. And in Acts chapter six, the Hellenistic Jews came to the apostles and they said, hey, our widows are not being taken care of. And so the apostles, they, they ended up ordaining and the congregation elected six men. And this is kind of maybe what we think of as the foundation of the diaconate. And, and at least some of those guys were Hellenistic Jews, Stephen, Philip, in order to help take care of these Hellenistic widows. And as we'll see next week when Randy comes, 
Stephen is martyred. And his death sparks a general persecution against the entire church. And it seems that the Hellenistic Jews, these Jews who had been converted, they, they might have received a little bit the worse wear of it. And so they began to flee back to their ancestral lands, out of the boundaries of Israel. And what the text tells us is that Saul has given license to pursue these different believers, people who are in Jerusalem, certainly, people who are within the boundaries of, of Israel. He can travel to them, to their synagogues in Galilee or Judea, but he can also go to outside the boundaries of Israel, to other cities and other countries. He's given the warrants to arrest these different individuals, drag them back to Jerusalem where they're put on trial. And when they're found guilty, they may be beaten or in many cases, they're executed and killed. This is a serious, this is a violent persecution. Verse three says that Saul was ravaging the church. The Greek word here, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. Outside of the New Testament, it's used to describe a city that was completely razed to the ground just totally destroyed after an army came through. One of the best usages of this word and outside of the Bible was a wild beast that completely mangled a human body. The body was just completely mangled and destroyed from a wild beast. This is what Paul is doing. He will say later to the Galatians, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Later in Acts, we read when he's on trial for his own life, he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." This is what's going on. If you had lived back then, just for a minute, imagine. If you had lived back then, do you think you would have been confused, you know, bewildered by the sudden change in the trajectory of the church? I mean, you think about it, right? Things are going great. The Holy Spirit descends. I mean, you're seeing thousands of people coming to Christ in Acts chapter two and then in Acts chapter three and thousands more. I mean, priests out of the temple are believing. I mean, all kinds of people from around the city and outside the city are believing and the apostles are doing all these incredible miracles, right? And you're, you're breaking bread in your home with other Christians. You're having all of this fellowship. You have good favor with all of your neighbors and people are, are really interested in what's going on. And then all of a sudden, it's like the flipping of a light switch. And the people who you're in good favor with are now casting you out. Your family's turning your back, their back on you. You're being ostracized. You're being persecuted. You're being arrested. You're even being killed. It's normal, right? It's normal to feel confused, anxious, discombobulated when someone 
persecutes you and abuses you and mocks you for your faith, especially when it's that kind of a reaction when you're trying to serve God, maybe even to, to love them and demonstrate the love of Christ to them and their response is antagonistic. It's confusing. And it's normal when that happens to ask God, why? It's normal when that persecution and abuse hurts you to wonder, where, where, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why aren't you defending me? If you think about it, several of David's psalms, some of his best, most powerful, passionate, most evocative psalms are asking these very questions under these exact circumstances. He's being abused and persecuted as a man of God, a person after God's own heart. And he's saying, God, where are you? In this dark hour when I'm being abused and persecuted, I don't, I don't sense you're on my side right now. Why aren't you defending me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why aren't you stopping this? Church, know that when you pour out before God, the pain and the confusion that abuse and persecution can create within you, God is not going to reject you because you share those feelings with you, with him. He's not gonna reject you when you share those feelings with him, even when those feelings push you to a point where you sin against him and you doubt his goodness and you unjustly accuse him, even then he's not gonna reject you. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, he rejected Jesus Christ on your behalf. 2,000 years ago on Calvary's tree, all of our sin and junk associated with our doubts about God and our accusations against God, they were placed on Jesus. He was rejected by God so we wouldn't be rejected by God at that moment of our deepest doubt and fear and even sinful accusation and unjust worry and anxiety and doubt. Now all that's possible because of Jesus. It's human to ask where are you, God? It's natural to ask these kinds of questions. Just don't forget the answer that God has provided for us. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. While you may feel like God has abandoned you in these times, while you may feel like God doesn't understand, especially at the heart of the abuse, at the depth of the persecution, his declaration is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God, in this instance here, we see, was sovereignly superintending his people during this persecution. They were not alone, even if they felt like they were alone. It was not out of control, even when it felt like it was out of control. And you see several examples of this in the verses, right? Verse two points out that even though the persecution was harsh and people were being scattered everywhere, the apostles were protected during this. 
They did not have to flee Jerusalem. They were protected by God. They were able to stay there. They were able to continue providing leadership for the church, guiding the church. Now, there would come a time later when James would end up being martyred and killed by the high priest in Jerusalem. There will come a time later when the apostles will be scattered all throughout the world and they will die in places as far flung as India to Libya to middle of Africa to Italy and other places like this. But for now, God preserves their lives and they're able to stay and continue to provide the leadership that the fledgling church needs. You see God superintending this. Something else that you see, another example of this is this man, Saul. This entire event that's going on right here is a crucial, crucial chapter in Saul's life. This chapter is being written right now. And we know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, who this guy becomes, right? But this moment is pivotal in his life. And it's gonna be used by God to turn him into Paul, that great apostle to the Gentiles and the author of the majority of the New Testament, right? And as the final verses reveal, this persecution becomes the springboard for Stephen's fellow deacon, Philip. And it's in his experience that we find our, our final gospel application and a truth that I want you to take with you this morning, truth that I hope that you can maybe discuss and in your small group meditate upon it this week. God redeems the pain of persecution and abuse by growing his kingdom in us and through us. God never promises as Christians that we are going to be free from persecution and abuse. In fact, the opposite. Jesus tells us we will experience this. The servant is not greater than the master. If we follow Jesus, it will happen. So he doesn't promise that we will not experience it, but what he does promise is that he will redeem it. And the way he redeems it is that he uses it to refine us, to grow the kingdom within us, to make us more like Jesus, and to, he refines it and redeems it by working through us and in that tribulation to expand the kingdom. And this is what you see in this passage. Do you remember Jesus's final charge to the apostles right before the ascension? Acts chapter one, verse eight, famous verse, kind of a guiding verse for the whole book of Acts. What does it say? He says to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the other most parts or the ends of the earth. This persecution that is happening right here in chapter eight, it is an important transition in the history of the church and in the book of Acts. From this point on, right, the focus of the book of Acts, the focus of church history and the kingdom shifts from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And it starts with Philip and Samaria. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. This had been happening in chapters two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Now, verse four, those who were scattered went about preaching 
the word. That word scattered, it's an agricultural term. You've all seen pictures, right? The guy, the gal, they're walking in the field. They have a basket of seed. They're throwing out the seed, right? You've all seen pictures like that, agriculture, or the farmers on the ground planting the seed in the ground. The picture here, that word scattered, is that God is using this persecution to plant the seed of the gospel around the world, the known world of that time. And And did that happen? Absolutely. Later in Acts chapter 11, we read this. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. Did you catch that? This persecution was the catalyst for Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the Gentiles, the ends of the earth. This is where it begins. God redeems this entire persecution and uses it to begin to expand the kingdom for his glory. The remaining verses in our text, they zero in on one believer, Philip, who was scattered by God. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. How Philip's life and the trajectory of his life changed with this persecution. He's a Hellenistic Jew living in Jerusalem, He's one of the original men ordained to help serve in the church and organize the service of the church. He's doing that ministry. He's a compatriot of Stephen. And now the persecution begins. And as a Hellenistic Jew, he flees. And God sends him of all places to Samaria. Samaria, what a joke. I mean, do you understand what's going on here? I mean, think back to Jesus's ministry. When he sent out the disciples, the 70, you know, and he, and he empowered them to preach the gospel and go to the towns and, and heal and do miracles, you know, shake the dust off of your feet if they don't hear. You remember that, all that in, in the gospels, right? Do you remember he said, but don't go to Samaria, right? They weren't allowed to go to Samaria. The, 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 the relationship between the Hebrews and the Samaritans was more toxic than any racial strife that we have in our nation today. Okay, that's what was going on. The, the Samaritans, for those of you who may not be aware, the Samaritans were half-breeds. It goes all the way back, you know, 700 years before. You know, after you know, Solomon became king, actually a thousand years, 900 years, Solomon was king. The kingdom, after he dies, the kingdom splits into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. In 721 BC, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, they are defeated by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire, cruel empire, they take those 10 tribes, the the vast majority of the population, they take them out of the land into exile, they disperse them throughout their massive kingdom, and those 10 tribes 
disappear off the pages of history. They're gone. And they take people from all those countries and they migrate them into the Northern kingdoms. So you have all of these Gentiles who are forcibly settled into the land and the remaining Jews who are there, over time they intermarry with these Gentiles, right? And and you know, right, with the law, you you don't marry a Gentile. So you have Jew and Gentile marrying, you have half-breed offspring, and to make matters worse, they form their own Pentateuch. They don't accept the, the five books of Moses the way the rest of the, the Israelites read and worship. They, they revise it. And they don't accept the temple in Jerusalem. They build their own temple. And they don't accept the prophets and all the other books of the Old Testament. It's only the Pentateuch. And so the, the, the rest of the Jews look at this group of people as a bunch of half-breed heretics. When Ezra and Nehemiah come back to rebuild the walls and the temple, the Samaritans oppose them and try to fight against them. I mean, the rabbis of the day when they would pray, and when they would pray to God for the resurrection to come, they would intentionally pray and ask God not to resurrect the Samaritans. (laughs) I mean, that's much worse than any racial tension we have. And where does God send Philip? To Samaria. And what a great fit. If Peter and John had gone down there, I mean, they're full-blooded, hardcore Hebrew Jews. They speak Aramaic, right? But Philip, he's a Hellenistic Jew. He's kind of like them. He's a little different. And he goes down and he preaches with power. And the sorrow of his persecution turns into the joy of salvation and restoration. And God, he redeems the pain of Stephen's loss, the pain of persecution and the abuse that Philip experiences in this persecution. In fact, he gets a new name, Philip the Evangelist. The only person in the New Testament to be given that title. And you'll see it play out in the pages ahead. You know, Christians all around the world face persecution and abuse from their governments, from their families, from the dominant religions of their nations, and from an antagonistic world. God's going to redeem that pain. And he's going to expand his kingdom through that persecution. In a couple of minutes... Paxton's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a time and we're going to block out just a season where we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing this in much worse ways than we are. But before we do that though, I want us to think about how we should respond or how we can respond to the various forms of persecution and abuse that we may encounter. We really have two choices. We have two choices. The first choice is to listen to the lie of Satan. That's the first choice. When we experience the pain of persecution and abuse, Satan will inevitably show up to whisper in our ear, perhaps even scream into our ear that the abuse and the persecution is the justifiable punishment of God against us because of our sin and our failures. This is tactic number one in the playbook of Satan. 
whether it's persecution and abuse or it's a trial and tribulation, the very first place he's gonna hit us is in this area where we are tempted to doubt God's goodness and love for us. Guarantee it. He's gonna tempt you to doubt that Jesus has already endured God's punishment for all of your sins, including the doubts and the anxiety and the fear and the worry and even the accusations that you may levy against God during that, that persecution and abuse. He's gonna tempt you to doubt it. He's gonna tempt you to doubt that you're an accepted love, a son and daughter of God who is deeply loved. And if you listen to this, church, hear me. I've experienced it. I've listened to this lie of Satan. And if you listen to this lie, the pain and the trauma is magnified and it, become, and it can become a, an all-consuming force in your life and have incredibly destructive fruit. If you listen to this lie, don't listen to this lie. Preach the gospel to yourself. That's one option. Listen to the lie of Satan. Please don't do that. The second option is to entrust yourself to the sovereign love of your Savior. The author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know why I quote that verse so much? It's because how, that's one of the ways I preach the gospel to my own heart. Look to Jesus, Jerry. Look to Jesus, Charlie. Look to Jesus, Lissa. Lay down that pain at his feet. Lay down the trauma at his cross in his hands and trust yourself to him. What does it look like to look to Jesus? It means you cry out to him. You lay it all out there honestly. You are just ruthlessly honest with God and yourself about where you are at at that moment in time and you cry out to him and you come to him and you lay out all the pain and the weakness before him. And you intentionally think about how he has been good to you. And you recount those blessings and you meditate upon that. And then you believe those promises of the gospel and God's word that he's given you for these very moments. And at those times when your faith is weak and you find it hard to believe, you confess that too. You say, I want to believe, Lord, but I can't right now. And you ask for that help to look to Jesus. You know, finally, what it looks like, it means you lean into your church family. You lean into your church family as you grieve and you weep together and you heal together. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're experiencing that kind of pain or some kind of hurt, I want to, experience, I want to encourage you at the close of the service, come to our care area. Let our Stephen ministers, our pastors pray with you, weep with you, begin to heal together, okay? Father, 
I pray for those in our church who maybe even right now are experiencing deep hurt. They've gone through abuse. They've gone through persecution. And, and it comes from quadrants that they, it should never have happened. It comes from a loved one. It comes from a spouse. It comes from a, a child, a family member. It comes at work. And God, I pray that you would deliver and work in each of these situations. Would you refine our brothers and sisters who are going through these times? And Lord, would you help us as a church to rally around them? Would you help us to have an environment in our covenant groups and in our church that is safe so that people feel like they can be honest and that they can reveal what's going on so that we can cry together, we can pray together, we can love one another, and we can support each other through these times of refinement. And God, we ask that through these events, you would expand your kingdom in our lives and in our community and in our world for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray, amen.